Well, it's been a long time since we've done an episode of the Let's Go Eat Show. A long, long time. November, maybe? Something like that of last year? Well, it's our inaugural uh, 2016 uh, edition of the Let's Go Eat Show, the very first one for this year. And we chose to uh, talk to former Salt Lake City Mayor Rocky Anderson. His real name is Ross Anderson. And I forgot to ask him where he got the nickname Rocky. But, you know, maybe another time. Uh, we sat down at Sage's Cafe. Thanks so much to Ian Brandt and the people uh, uh, the people here. Uh, Tyler, our waiter, was great. We had great food at Sage's, um, as always. And, and, you know, is it? I guess it's completely uh, vegan, certainly a vegetarian restaurant. I asked Rocky, have you always been a vegetarian? He said, well, about 13 years, and, and I do eat a little bit of fish now and then, he said. Uh, but at any rate, we sat down over some great salads and some delicious French fries. Uh, we talked about, as he put it, a wide-ranging topic, the topic of his life, where he got started, how he got started, where he's from. And uh, we also talk about the state of politics in the world today. I hope you enjoy our conversation with Rocky Anderson on the Let's Go Eat show. We'll start, and we can, you know, just talk and... And the food will come, and it'll be fine. Which one am I, Dylan? You're number one, yeah. or number four, I guess. Four, yeah. All right, so anyway, Sage's Cafe, uh, Rocky Anderson, former mayor of Salt Lake City, Rocky Anderson. Thanks for coming down, and we'll have some food here at Sage's Cafe in a minute. And I haven't seen you for a long time. Well, I love Sage, and it's great to see you, Bill. Thank you. You know, um, I want to we'll, talk about your background and stuff like that, and we'll talk about then we'll talk also about your uh, views about w- where we are in the political world today and the world situation and everything. But it's uh, it's interesting to me that um, you have often been described, and you know, as as intense and uh, and kind of prickly and bristly, bristling and hard. You know, and I've, every time I've ever talked to you, and I've told people this, and run into you at a restaurant or whatever – I, I say, you know, he's just the nicest guy I've ever, you know, he's just, <laughs> just always nice and polite and hi, how are you? And just, you know, um, uh, I, does it ever bother you? You have that reputation of being prickly or. Yeah, I, I understand it to some extent, because when I'm passionate about things, especially mm-hmm. standing up where I feel like I'm fighting establishment interests on behalf of people who don't have a lot maybe don't have any power and are they're abused by people who have a lot of power then i i get tough and but it's coming from i think a pretty soft spot frankly soft spot for the 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 downtrodden the little guy the yeah i feel a lot for people who don't have a lot of opportunities haven't been given a lot in this world and i've always felt to the extent I had opportunities, had a good education, maybe didn't take full advantage of it at times, especially mm-hmm. college. But, um, yeah, I, you know, I, I, I really was very fortunate in terms of the family I was born into, my friends, my education, my opportunities, practicing law, doing Wait. politics, all that. I feel like I owe a lot back. And there's so many people that don't have a whole lot. And that's not just in our local community, not not just those that I know personally or come to know personally. 
I feel the same way about people halfway around the world yeah. that are not being treated fairly and who are suffering in large part because of our nation's foreign policies. Where did you come by all of this? You were you were a ki- kid. You grew up in Logan, born in Logan. You're uh, uh, a Mormon boy. Mormon boy in Logan, a Mormon family. What did your dad do? He was in Anderson Lumber Company. Anderson Lumber, yeah. At the end, he was CEO and general manager of Anderson Lumber so Company. So he did pretty well for himself as a hard-working American building up a lumber company. Yeah. Well, it was started by his father and grandfather, and he and all of his brothers went into the business. And then the next generation, none of us went into it. Although growing up uh, and through college, I worked at a number of the different lumber yards. I built trusses. I delivered lumber, drove lumber truck, mm-hmm. uh, learned, uh, I think, a really good work ethic, and, and came to really understand what working people go through, the now, challenges you, they have. Your dad and your grandfather, uh, by the time, that you, the family was fairly well-to-do then, probably, but did they insist that you work in uh, any way? No, something I I remember when I was 15, I wanted a job more than anything. I was really? so happy to be able to get down and work at the Anderson Cabinet Mill, and I worked my tail off. It was a buck sixty an hour, um, and summers I, I not only, well, even during school, I not only worked after school at the lumber mill, but I also... Played in a rock and roll band. Yeah, I saw that. The Viscounts. The Viscounts. I played lead guitar, and our lead singer's father uh, shingled homes uh, on the side of his job. Mm-hmm. Uh, he taught me how to do it, and he and I shingled houses together. So, I I kind of consider myself a working person. Was really proud of it. Saw the results of my labor, and uh, I really felt part of the working class did you did you have to do that or could you have uh, gone to school gone to college and and all of that kind of stuff without working if you if you if you had wanted to with with family support well first of all we we weren't as well to do as one might think Mm -hmm. we we lived pretty modestly Mm -hmm. um if you saw the homes that we lived on and at least until we moved to ogden they were very modest middle class homes Mm -hmm. tiny home up in logan I go back and visit now, and I wonder, how did my sister and I ever share this tiny bedroom with almost no closet? Mm-hmm. It's, um, Is it just the two of you, the two kids? No, I've got an older brother, but older he's brother. 14 years older, so he was away to Columbia University when I was what, about six or seven years old. Oh, yeah. So, um, yeah, I guess Honestly. I could have I skated by. I could have used the excuse that I need to study and all mm-hmm. that, but... It never really was wasn't an issue. in your nature. No, I think my and I think my father and mother um, were, really were very supportive. They they saw me going to school. I, I'd, I'd actually schedule my classes so I'd have seminary classes my last period, so I could just slough school mm-hmm. uh, toward the end of the day and yeah. get another hour in down at the the lumber mill. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is all. Was this still in Logan? No, that was in Ogden. Why did you guys move to Ogden? Well, we moved away from Logan to Salt Lake City when I was seven. My dad came down as manager of the lumberyard here on Fifth East. And then um, when I was in 
when I finished fifth grade, we moved to Ogden, and he the, was then president of Lumberyard. And was that, that was, on Wall Avenue? That was the headquarters. Was it, it was. Wall? I yeah, remember that. Memory. Yeah, yeah, and I remember, and there was a, and it was there for quite some time, even uh, into the six, 70s, 60s and 70s, wasn't it? Or, yeah, it was. Yeah. It was. And, and yeah. there was a, it was kind of, there was a store. I mean, I wasn't in, but I think you'd go in and buy tape measures and hammers yeah, that and that was, that was kind of the, and, yeah. the Ace Hardware yeah. kind of place. Yeah. Uh, plus the lumberyard, and it was very consumer-oriented as well as for contractors. And then yeah. there was an adjoining cabinet mill, and then we also had a truss plant, and I, I was building truss plant, trusses at the time. But, you know, that when you see what's happened to so many of these lumberyards since then, and the company was sold uh, many years ago, uh, and it's the classic story of the family business being sold to some company in North Carolina that was owned by some holding mm-hmm. company in Europe, and uh, they changed the name. And most of them have, I think, gone under yep. now, victims of the big boxes, yep. the same look-alike yep. places that where you walk in, you're no longer greeted by name. Mm-hmm. There's, we really we lose so much sense of community and, I think, quality of life. When we don't have those associations, my, my dad used to tell me about, I mean, he knew every contractor. They would know each other's stories. They'd hang out socially. Uh, everybody knew each other. Yeah. And it's sort of like what we're seeing with independent booksellers now. Yeah. You know, we're kind of contemporaries, and I grew up in Ogden at about that same time, and I, I didn't realize, I guess I didn't realize it was Anderson Lumber, and I know something about all of this. Thanks, Tyler. Uh, we're getting our food here uh, at Sage's Cafe. Uh, beautiful looking set. Which which salad is which there? Which uh, your salad is on the left. Okay, that that one. one yes. yes, my right. Thank you, thank you. Um, so mine has the beautiful mushrooms mm-hmm. on top. Portobello's. Yeah, yeah. So you know, I was uh, my, maybe you knew my uh, my grandfather uh, was Ralph Wheelwright. Who, oh, Wheelwright Lumber? Well, his his cousins had oh, Wheelwright Lumber, okay. and he had Ogden Builder Supply on Grand Avenue. Um, and uh, he he had his own, you know, he his own kind of, I mean, he had a little lumber yard there and a little store and, uh, you know, and, and just sold stuff to builders in, in the Ogden area. But then he got into, uh, then he built a car wash next to it on uh, Grand Avenue behind the Bon Marche. Uh-huh. And yeah. then it, it was the first exactly it what was, you're talking about. It was the first self-service car wash in Ogden. And he was very proud of that. And he built it and I worked there in that car wash. I mean, I worked in that lumber yard from the time I was 7. It was next to the Well. Remember the Well Cafe on the corner? Oh, yeah. Was it 23rd and Grant, I think? Yeah. And then uh and uh, he, now the Well was a bar, but they would let he would sometimes let me go in there and uh, and have a hamburger or something, uh-huh. you know. But my the big treat was to go to Kramer's down. You know, remember Kramer's the hamburger stand? On, yep. Yeah, I do. So, so anyway, and, and, and in those days, you could go down Washington Boulevard, Ogden's downtown. Every single store was a local family store. Oh yeah, Fred M. Nye, Bueller Bingham. Bingham. We bought our home from the Wolfords hmm. that had Wolfords uh, department store. Yeah. You had uh, Wayne Wilcox, yeah. Blue Door. The Blue Door. Went, yeah. and, and these were all people that 
you knew, you'd walk into their places, they knew who you were, they knew your families. Uh, we, we have lost a lot mm-hmm. with these look-alike communities that are all owned by big national companies. And by the way, the money we spend mostly goes out of state yeah. because their accounting firms, their lawyers, their advertisers are all out of state. It's like what happened to ZCMI. They used to use local models, of course, uh-huh. local lawyers, accountants, whatever. Uh, once they sold, uh, everything went out yeah. of state, including, of course, their models. So you went to Ogden High School? I went to Ogden High. I went to Ben Lomond. Pro- roughly at the same time you went to Ogden High. Probably saw you across the football field in the Iron Horse game. Well, the Viscounts used to play at Ben Lowen. Uh, I probably saw you play. <laughs> I don't remember. Probably the wasn't all that memorable. <laughs> well, any any uh, uh, any of your music? Uh, did you record any of it? Do you have any of it? We recorded for some local radio stations. That was a lot of fun. We'd go down their studios and they record. And I'd, yeah, I would love to have some of those old recordings yeah. because I I don't play anymore. You don't play at all anymore? No. Why not? Uh, time, I guess. You know, it's just your priorities. And I never was really great at it. My son, is he can play circles around me. He's yeah. a great guitarist. But Yeah, that's kind of happening to me, Like I and I regret it. I used to play the piano and the saxophone, and I used to... Who made you play the piano? You did. Who got you that saxophone? You did. Yeah. Okay. Get, and I, get and with I, it. And occasionally, I haven't played that... I haven't played in two years. I feel bad about it. Yeah. Well, you should get back at it because I should get Rocky some. Uh, it, it's uh, easy to lose silverware. silverware? Yeah. Uh, yeah. If you don't, oh, oh you got, got some, some there. Got uh, some. You got you. your napkin. But uh, if you don't, if you you want to take a break and eat, or no, oh, we're okay. Yeah, I can, keep going. I can because uh, yeah. I can talk and eat at the same time. I don't. It doesn't okay. bother me. I'm good at it. I'll, I'll follow my lead. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, so you go to Ogden High School. Then, where where did you go? When did you know you wanted to go into the law? Uh, after, I, I guess it had been in my head for some time. My brother was a lawyer. The one who went to Columbia, right? But uh, I, I actually got into law school here after grad. I, I did my undergraduate work at the University of Utah. Graduated in philosophy. Um, it was just one of those things. I sort of naturally applied for law school, mm-hmm. got in, and then decided, no, that's not really what I want to do right now. So uh, I took the graduate exams and got into graduate school in philosophy. And I did that for a while, and then I decided that's not – even at that point in my life, all I wanted to do was help bring about change. I uh, wanted to make things better in where the world. Where does that come from? Where that's, where did that feeling come from, do you think? I don't know. I wonder if when people don't feel that that's what they want to well, do with I mean, their lives. But, I mean, most <laughs> most most people are, especially at a younger age like that, they're just, you know, I was just self-absorbed and worried about, you know, how, if girls would girl like, like me. And, me. and uh, you know, and just, I was, I, it just never occurred to me. Well, until maybe when I would, yeah, maybe, you know, the Vietnam War, you start thinking about what Exactly what I was going to say is there's a Vietnam War. uh, I read Paul Ehrlich's book, The Population Bomb. Um, 
the civil rights movement had a huge impact. There was the assassinations of not only President Kennedy, but Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King Jr. Did you go up to Weber State and see Bobby Kennedy the couple of days before he was... No, I didn't. He, yeah, I was he, I was up there. I was still in high school. I've got a photograph that Michael Covey did. Uh, he was kind enough to give me this beautiful photograph that he took of Bobby Kennedy when he was speaking at the terrace here mm-hmm. in Salt Lake City, and that was just uh, days before his assassination. Yeah. It's a beautiful photograph. Spoke at the terrace here, and then I think he went up to Weber State after that, huh. and uh, we we left school, Ben Lomond. I think I was a senior. Or well, maybe, no, probably not. Because that was 66, 7? 60, yeah, at least 67. 67. I, re- I remember coming home from a gig with the Viscounts and watching TV, and my mother was in the kitchen, and I saw that televised happen mm-hmm. that night. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's pretty shocking. And, I, you know, I think the arts had a lot to do with it, too. Then we had, uh, in our music, yeah, uh, I think some radicalizing features really, and I say that in a really positive sense, shaking us out of whatever social lethargy we may have been suffering from. But th- th- there were a lot of things, including my early religious upbringing, frankly. I took those messages of helping those who are in need very seriously. When did you fall away from that? The uh, uh, When did you fall away from being a a practicing i think once you if you're born into the mormon religion you're always kind of a mormon well i, I don't think i am actually no? i think you i shed it completely and i know a lot of people have a real hard time and they spend a lot of time and energy trying to justify their decision and i did go through a, a tough time uh, not socially because my my family weren't fanatics they, they didn't they, they were supportive no matter what i wanted to do hmm. Um, so I didn't face that kind of pressure, but I, I took all of it very seriously growing up and especially the lessons that we learned. But, uh, I think when I first started fading away was when I would hear the messages of blind obedience and mm-hmm. I'll never forget in sacrament meeting once this guy was talking about the article of faith that we believe in being subject to Kings, rulers, rulers presidents, yeah. all the rest. And, uh, he, he said, it's our job to follow our political and military leaders. And if they are in error, then they will be held accountable and responsible. We will not because we were simply doing what we were supposed to do, following them. And that was just on the heels of the Adolf Eichmann trial. Even though I, was, I, was, I think I was 12 years old. At the mm-hmm. time of the Eichmann trial, mm-hmm. uh, that hit me really hard, this whole message that it's never enough to say I was just following orders. Now, people it, may, who may not know, Adolf Eichmann, uh, uh, one of the last big-time, uh, I think, war Nazi war criminals captured, put on trial in the early 60s. I think 1964, I believe. Probably. And put on trial in Nuremberg, I believe, and um, and yeah, and found guilty of war crimes. And he was was he in fact executed? Was it Nuremberg or Israel? I can't remember where he was tried, but it it might have been Israel. But uh, yeah, he was executed. Executed. But but it, it, it that left such a huge impression on me about our 
individual moral, not only autonomy, but responsibility. Uh, that we have the, the grand privilege of being moral actors, each of us making our choices, but we also have an enormous responsibility. And so when I heard this message, and then I heard it reinforced over and over, and I still hear those messages of, uh, messages of, of being obedient, even on the heels of this outrageous new dictate by the LDS Church that uh, yeah. that young people in households of same-sex parents can't even be baptized and they won't be considered for baptism until they're 18 and they have to move away. And uh, I, I just, I, I, I can't find another word for that other than despicable. And, and and yet we we still hear those messages of well you just need to understand these are our leaders they're hearing this from God well, all will be revealed Mr. Anderson all will be revealed I know and that's what they said about the uh, the the bigotry toward African Americans until they were they finally condescended to allow them into the priesthood and other temple ceremonies in 1979. When the writing was on the wall, that they really had no choice but to allow African Americans into the LDS Church. So there were a lot of these factors, but you know, after Vietnam and the church's unwillingness to stand up against what we were doing there, which was the just everything about it utterly immoral. Um, so yeah, I. I it wasn't a sudden thing. It was it was gradual over time, and then I looked at the theology and decided there's no way that I buy that either. And, but at the same time, I don't think it's any worse than most other religions, and I'm not saying they're bad in that context. I, I don't mean this to be... I, I respect people's views and actually growing up in it and feeling so strongly in favor of it. As a young boy... I totally empathize and understand how people who have those religious beliefs come to sustain those and, sure. and the pressures to and sustain it's, those and beliefs. It, and, it, it, and it's something that that you may not need in your life, but it's very, very. People need it somehow. Some other people seem to need it, and and how you know you can't you can't disrespect that feeling in them. Yeah, I, you know that's why I'm an agnostic. I'm not. I, I didn't turn to atheism. No, uh, no, not Buddhism. Not no. For me, uh, I am so agnostic about just about everything, and that's just simply an admission of my lack of knowing. I well, think I think it's so arrogant for anybody to say that they know these ultimate truths. Well, allow me to be arrogant and say to you, Rocky Anderson. <laughs> It's okay to be an atheist. It really is. Oh, it, I agree. It's kind of freeing. Yeah. I, it's, it's kind of freeing. I, and, and I respect that, and I think it's really difficult. Mm-hmm. I, I probably, uh, for a period of time, was an atheist because it was like a total rejection of what I had grown up to believe. But then I realized I really, I just don't know. There are too many amazing accounts, too many amazing things about our own existence, I find a lot of validity, actually, the teleological argument for God that, you know, you find a watch on a desert island and the way that it operates, the purposefulness of it, 
the the intricacy of it, you know that something created it the divine for a reason. Maker, yeah. And just compare that mm-hmm. to your eyeball. How did, and but I believe in evolution. I, I, it's not that I believe in it. I know mm-hmm. evolution happened. That's yeah. scientific fact. It's not just somebody's speculation. Um, but there's just too much about all of this. There, there's some kind of thing that we all have. There's an energy between people. There's some who are a lot more sensitive to it than others out there, I think. Um, so I don't know. That's, that's the, the bottom line, and I'm sure that I will die not knowing. And I hope to find out. <laughs> I hope afterwards. Well, Either way is okay. You'll either, either find out or you won't. Either there's nothing there and I'll be okay sure. with that because I could use a sleep. And, mm-hmm. Or maybe something will, maybe we'll learn more. Or maybe we'll simply come back and try no, to advance. And, and, I, I, and I don't think that's a silly thing. I think there are a lot of people that believe in reincarnation. Sure. I think there's a lot of evidence for that as well. Uh, you know, I I have this picture of you know Rocky Anderson at eleven or twelve years old being so serious that uh, you know, <laughs> you know. I wasn't. I was a total screw up. Okay, I, good. I'm, I'm the I'm like the guy in junior high school who was the only one to get a UN citizenship because you couldn't stop running uh, around. Yeah. Okay. Good. Good. <laughs> uh, you you went to, you studied philosophy but decided to go to go to the law finally. Uh, went to law school in at George Washington. Did I read? Yes. Yeah, and uh, and then you become a, a lawyer. And did you want to do a particular kind of law? Did you think I'm going to be a criminal defense lawyer? Or? No, I, I went to law school with the intention of doing human rights work, you, international oh, okay. human rights. And actually, one of the really pivotal times. Not was, a lot of money in that, you know. No, I wasn't after money. <laughs> uh, that's that's really never been a driving. Motivator. What what I care about is at the end of my life being able to look back and say that I help people who are in need. And given the human rights situation in this country, and at, even at that time, we need all the people getting behind it that we can. You so, were, so you had several, as an attorney, so though you did several pretty high-profile cases and cla- you did some class action stuff, I think. And I did. I had one class action case... Uh, representing women who had been taken to Salt Lake County Jail on minor violations and were subjected to uh, just incredibly humiliating and invasive and unnecessary searches. Mm-hmm. And that, and you, you prevailed in that. And I just noticed that as I went through a, you know, a bio of you, there are several, <clears throat> several cases that are considered pretty, you know, um, they change the way laws happened. Yeah, and that, uh, that's very rewarding when yeah. you win not only for your client, but you win for people down the road. There was one case in particular that went, we won a trial. It went up on appeal to the Utah Supreme Court. And it was bought versus DeLand. DeLand was the executive director of the Department of Corrections at the time. Lonnie DeLand? No, it was Lonnie's brother. Oh. Gary DeLand. Gary DeLand, yeah. And uh, in that case, we expanded the protections for inmates dramatically beyond what federal law provides. So you've got a fairly strict standard for to, to be able to prove cruel and unusual punishment. But in Utah, as I was filing this case, and it was for mostly deprivation of, of 
necessary medical treatment. This man almost died because they kept blowing him off for a number of weeks. Uh, he had a, uh, what they call IgA nephropathy, which mm. is kidney disease. Mm. And he was in end-stage renal failure by the time they finally responded and got him to the university hospital. But uh, I was looking for state claims that we might bring as well as the federal claims. And I found in the Utah Constitution a provision that provides protection against the unnecessarily rigorous treatment of people who are arrested and incarcerated. And so I pursued that claim as well. We won on that claim. It went up to the Utah Supreme Court. They affirmed, and they made very clear that we have greater protections under the state constitution than under the federal constitution for people who are incarcerated. Mm. And yet, uh, and and that's gratifying. And then, the, but this poor son of a bitch dying out of the state prison of uh, because he didn't get his dialysis recently. Yeah, uh, just. Yeah, I mean, blatant. Shocking. Yeah, yeah, it is shocking. Completely unnecessary. And it's not just the medical providers. Mm -hmm. uh, Everybody along the line, those those who are at the prison, they they certainly knew. And if they didn't, they should have known that he needed to go in uh, on a regular basis for dialysis. And that kind of disregard, we we see it too often among some corrections officials, and certainly see it throughout our society. Mm-hmm. When we look, in, and I think Gary DeLand had this view. Well, I know he did. He was very disdainful toward inmates. His view was just keep them as long as you can until they're too old to want to go out and commit crimes. Uh, well, he, he that's scoffed, one way to look at it, I guess. He scoffed at the notion of rehabilitation. Mm-hmm. And the fact is we know that good programs can help equip people to come out of prison and lead good law-abiding lives. Mm-hmm. But they need follow-up. They need, we, we could put our resources, instead of being a country with 5% of the population and 25% of the world's incarcerated people, mm-hmm. we could get back to, to 5% of the incarcerated population in the world, cut back those who are in our prisons dramatically, and just simply provide them what most of them have never had, literacy skills, job skills, job opportunities, uh, some housing. You know, we got a lot of people mm-hmm. on the streets. Mm-hmm. You, you, I, I, I'd ask anybody, go down at night on a cold night and drive by the road home yeah. and the Wiegand Center, all the homeless providers down there. Look at how many people are on the streets, and a lot of them with mental illnesses. And we've had this problem ever since the Reagan administration. And I loved it when I heard John Kasich. This is about the only time you'll hear me say that I loved anything that any of these Republican candidates said during the last debate. But John Kasich said it so straightforwardly that we as a nation have got to step it up and start dealing with people with mental illnesses and drug addictions and stop putting them in jails and prisons and provide treatment for them because that's the only solution. And we all know it's a far less expensive solution in the long run. Uh, You know, this just brings to mind, and I don't want to get into your political career, but while we're here, uh, this brings to mind the uh, just this, uh, to me, it's, it's beyond shocking. Uh, case of the the water, lead water contamination in Flint, Michigan, and how 
people are people who are in charge and from the governor on down are just running the other way from this. Well, I didn't know. I didn't know anything about it. I would, you know, how how was I supposed to know? Well, and the, when the fact is that they didn't care because Flint, Michigan is a dying town and its population is 70% African American and they don't care. They just didn't care. They what didn't a- care to know what happened to those people. And what so I my get and I was just wondering this today and maybe you know something about it. There must be lawyers in there right now lining up class action lawsuits for these people because they deserve some help from attorneys. And and if if this does not bankrupt the the state of Michigan, I mean, this could bankrupt the state of Michigan. Well, I hope they can the do claims. something. But you know, we have this perverse, very elitist notion of sovereign immunity in this country, uh, yeah. where you can't sue the state or the federal government or its agencies, and sometimes even their agents, unless there's been a waiver. Of sovereign immunity, we we have one of the worst, most co- complex, convoluted governmental immunity act statutes in the state of Utah. You can't sue City Hall, as they say. Well, let me tell you, it, 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 this is the epitome of injustice, uh, the the kind of manifestation of economic inequality that none of us should stand for. Mm-hmm. There is a statute, and in its present iteration, it was sponsored by Jackie Biskupski, Salt Lake City's present mayor, when she was working at the sheriff's office. And it provides that, Bill, if you are beat up by a police officer, mm-hmm. mistakes your identity, for instance, mm-hmm. And you're seeking compensation. You're seeking justice in the courts, as, as our system of government is supposed to allow you to do. The statute requires that before you can file your claim under state law, you first have to put up a bond in an amount that the judge finds is the what? amount of fees and costs that what? will be incurred by the police officer in the lawsuit, and if for some reason you lose the lawsuit, you have to pay that officer's attorney's fees. It is an absolute outrage. I've spent the last nine months fighting for a finding of the unconstitutionality of that statute in in the case involving Mm -hmm. Sean Kendall and the officer walking into his backyard completely unconstitutionally and shooting his dog dead. Because his dog did what dogs do. When people walk in their backyards, he barked and he ran towards it. Geist. Geist. No, the dog. Uh, Okay. Let's go to, so Rocky Anderson, uh, crusading lawyer in Salt Lake City. Um, uh, Did you work for a firm? I did. I I started at a firm uh, by the name of Berman and Juke. Uh, Dan Berman and Dick Chuk. Oh, a, Dan Berman, yeah. It's a fairly small boutique, very intense litigation practice. We're probably on one side or the other of almost every big case that was in town. But uh, they also, I mean, I, I worked extremely hard, and I really loved having the kind of experience that I gained 
working with lawyers like that. Dan Berman was on TV for a while, right? Am I I thinking of... No, well, I mean, he appeared on television, yeah. He ran for the United States Senate against Jake Garn at one point. Oh, that's right. I'm thinking of a different guy. So, um, anyway. But I, almost from the beginning, I wanted to make certain that, okay, you've got your requirements of your associates and such, but I always made it a point to, to take on cases, even pro bono cases, or risky contingent cases where I felt um, justice needed to be done. And your partners and, were good with that? Your yeah, they were great the because I also held up my end on the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Maybe meant working 60 or 70 hours a week, but, you know, at the time I was, I was hungry for it. I just wanted to, you know, learn as much as I could and have as much as a, 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 a great experience as I could, and th- they were the kind of people that said, great, take it on. And uh, then I became, on a volunteer basis, the legal panel director for the Utah ACLU, uh, was on their board, and then ultimately was president of the ACLU board. I was also on the Planned Parenthood board, and for 15 years was on the Guadalupe School. Did you have a board. personal life at all? <laughs> yeah, I actually did. I, uh, you had a son there somewhere. In there. Yeah. And did you did you get married at some point? Yeah, I was married uh, in I believe it was around 1982. Mm-hmm. We were married. We were together for six years, mm-hmm. and a lot of that was really great. Yeah. Um, also, during that time, not only was I doing the kinds of things we were just talking about, but um, I, I found out about what the United States was doing in Central America, and particularly Nicaragua. Oh, I read supporting about Supporting the Contras and... Uh, Ronald Reagan supporting the Contras. Uh, well, he organized them. They, yeah. he, he, the United States orchestrated, funded. The, the Contras were a, a total... Against the Sandinista, right? Against Sandinistas, but they were a total product of the United States government. And uh, later Sandinistas, leaders of Sandinistas like Edgar Schmorrow made that very clear. He wrote an article for the New York Times, an op-ed piece disclosing this was all a United States operation. Yeah. And a, one of the Sandinista leaders became president of Nicaragua, as I recall. That's right. He still is, Daniel he's, Ortega. Oh, he still is president. Yeah, well, he, he, he was at the time, and then there was a time when the United States, of course, was interfering with what was going on. They handpicked the president for a while, and now Daniel is is once again the president. Um, but what we were doing throughout Central America was disastrous. It was tragic. Uh, so many people killed, terrorized. The CIA wrote a terrorism manual for the Contras telling them how they could terrorize the people into submission so they'd no longer support a government that couldn't protect them. Even talked about they used the polite term neutralize, which meant kill local community leaders. Um, so when I got wind of that, I felt like I, I needed to do what I could, especially as a citizen of this country, to turn things around as we might. And I organized a couple of trips. Of We had probably two dozen people each trip from the community go down, find out for themselves what was happening because we were being fed... Uh, nothing but lies from the Reagan administration and much of the media. 
And we had media representatives go down on both of those trips, and they were totally turned around. They came back, and both of them re- did. And one in the Tribune, the editorial editor, he wrote a several-part beautiful series on what really was happening mm. in Nicaragua. And then uh, Channel 2 Television sent down their uh, 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 news reporter and camera person, and they did a an award-winning series. So... This was a good way to get out the truth, and I really felt like if people in this country only could see through the false propaganda of the Reagan administration and the very complacent and complicit media and uh, the the tragedy that was wrought in these very poor countries, countries that have struggled a long time under dictatorships that were propped up by the United States. Is this uh, Oliver North? Oliver North was one of the worst. Yeah, I mean, this guy was so bad. Congress passed what was called the Boland Amendment, prohibiting any financial support of the Contras, finally. Mm -hmm. And so he planned, and remember what what was happening with Iran at the time? He actually planned to provide arms to the Contras through helping out Iran and its military. And they, they helped filter the money through Israel. It was, it was a I know criminal. about Oliver North from Family Guy. There are yeah. people here, to, people today, who think Oliver North is a hero. Oh, that must be pretty disconcerting. Well, the man's a total traitor. He's a, anybody that understands separation of powers, checks and balances, would see that he's an absolute traitor. Colonel North. He's a he's constitutional a, criminal. Sean, he, I don't know. He, he had his own radio show after all of this happened. He was on Fox News. He, uh, he had his own Fox News show. Sean Hannity always called him Colonel North and had him on his show all the time for his wisdom. He's a hero to some people, Rocky. How can that be? Well, you know, there are a lot of people that support Donald Trump, too. So. Well, that's true. Now, when did politics uh, enter into all of this? Uh, why, why did you decide you wanted to run for office? And um, I, I think it, you ran for Congress, was it? I ran for Congress in 1996. Didn't, didn't, make, didn't beat... Uh, Merrill Cook. Mer- I'm sorry. It's okay. It, it took me to run against Merrill for Merrill to finally win an election. Yeah, yeah. But you know, in 1996. I'm sorry. Yeah, I think I, I, I think I would have won that election, frankly, if the Democratic Party had gotten behind me. But you ran as the, a Democrat. I ran as a Democrat. They they didn't help me out with one nickel, uh, and the Demo- local Democratic leaders. I remember getting together with them, and they said, no, no, our pollster down at BYU said that we need a white male Mormon conservative. I'll never forget this. I looked down, and I said, so you're telling me that sex, religion, and gender are three of your, no, sex and gender are the same, uh, religion, race, and gender yeah. are three of your criteria, and your fourth one is conservatism? Mm. I said, well, count me out. And you go get your own candidate, and I'm sure you can beat me. You're the leadership of the Democratic Party. But they didn't. And in the primary, no, I, I creamed their their hand-picked candidate who um, was a white male conservative Democrat. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, about as conservative as they get. And, and But 
as I was warned, my stand in favor of marriage equality did me in. That was that became the core of Merrill Cook's campaign against me, although he'd privately promised me that he would never make that an issue in his campaign. He did. It was all over the television. Had a picture of me, Rocky Anderson believes in same-sex marriage, and a picture of Merrill. Merrill believes in Utah family values. What year was this? This was... It was 1996. 96. But I even had people in the gay and lesbian community coming to me and saying, don't do this, it's too radical, it's too far out there. Too early, too early. And I just said, you know, somebody's not going to kick down the door and lead out then this isn't ever going to happen, and and I'm not. It's more important to me to be able to look myself in the mirror the rest of my life rather than win a race for the United States Congress. So, and so soon, how soon after that uh, defeat did you run for mayor? Uh, I ran for mayor in 1999. So after the '96 race, I went back to my law practice. I'd I'd spent a year campaigning for Congress. No income, um, relied very largely on volunteer help, had, had some good people work in that campaign against almost impossible odds. But we actually did very well. We won a majority of the people in Salt Lake City, the voters. Yeah, and then you, so then you run, decide to run for mayor of Salt Lake. And again, did you, well, it's a, it's a, bi, it's a nonpartisan uh, position, supposedly, but, right. but, Everybody knows who's the Democrat and who's the Republican. In yeah, but actually it was two supposed Democrats running in the general election. It was Stuart Reed and me, and that's before Stuart well, went over to the Republican Party. But he claimed to be a Democrat at the time, but you'd never believe it if you'd heard him talk about mm-hmm. just about any issue. But, An Ogdenite, uh, Stuart Reed. And, well, Ogden now. now. Yeah, he yeah. was from Rose Park at the time. Yeah. Uh, but I beat him 60-40. And he ran one of the dirtiest campaigns imaginable. Mm. He sent out a, because I worked against minimum mandatory sentencing on the state level, including for sex offenses, because every case is different and we need to allow some judgment on the part of judges rather than treating every case the same. And our prison was uh, filled to the gills. Uh, It was extremely expensive to keep people 9, 11, or 13 years without any possibility of parole. Mm-hmm. And so we got a, a, we built a consensus among a very diverse group of corrections people, law enforcement, prosecutors, very conservative legislators, urging that the legislature do away with minimum mandatory sentences for sex offenses. And the legislature ultimately voted for it. And I think it was a unanimous vote. But he sent out a mailer that had a picture, which was totally irrelevant to the issue. It was like a white woman, and it looked like a a male Hispanic that was threatening to her. Mm -hmm. And it said on the envelope, it's frightening. There's someone who wants to release sex predators in your neighborhood to prey on your children. And then you turn it over, and there's a picture of me, and it said, and he's running for mayor. And then it took some statements out of context, never disclosing that the legislature voted to get rid of those minimum mandatory sentences. Um, but you beat him. 
Yeah, we, did he take? Did he? Did they take credit for that, or did they say, "No, that was somebody else"? No, no, they took credit. They took credit. A lot got, of times, those kind of things come out, and the, and the candidate says, "Oh, that wasn't me." No, no, he did. Well, yeah, there was a great story like that with Merrill Cook. I'll tell you about. But uh, no, actually, that was the Reed campaign. Not only took credit for it, but after the election, he sent me a personal note apologizing for what he had done during the campaign. I think that. The, Conscience the, 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 but, you know, in my view, those private apologies really are meaningless. If, if you did something like that publicly, make the apology public, or it really doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Well, it's public now. Now, people will hear it and know that it happened. But, uh, so what's this Merrill Cook story? Oh, he, <clears throat> there were all these pink sheets. Pink is very important, sort of like what Richard Nixon did to his opponent for Congress in California, but there, then the pink meant that they were communists Communist. on the so other pinko. side. Mm-hmm. Here, pink meant something very different, and that was my support for the gay and lesbian community. And these pink sheets started showing up all over town, and they attributed them to an organization that did not exist, and it said that... Uh, not only did I support all these things for the gay and lesbian community, but I, I think they also address guns that I want to take, take everybody's guns away from them or mm-hmm. something. It was really it was, it was a very nasty, stupid piece. Mm-hmm. And Merrill Cook disclaimed any responsibility, but he told me he knows who, who put them out. Mm-hmm. Um, but I won't say who that is because I don't have the proof of okay. it. But it was just, you know, more of dirty, nasty, and I think very bigoted politics. So you become mayor of Salt Lake, uh, and you were two terms. You, you won a re-election as mayor. Uh, the the, the uh, Olympics happen. 9-11 happens. The Olympics happen. Um, you're the mayor during the Olympics. Did you have did you have a problem with that being you are you are a figure uh, of leadership and you're associated with the Olympics and there was a lot of scandal around those games um, uh, before I was elected yeah but before you were elected you sort of were had to deal with the the fallout from it they brought Mitt Romney in to kind of help clean that all up and and which which he did in a in a pretty impressive way I thought he did uh, I, he I've was, always I've always given Mitt tremendous credit for what he did well you guys were pretty you guys were, you guys were pretty good buddies during that time oh I yeah think, we right? worked very closely together yeah. and I I had nothing but admiration for his leadership mm-hmm. through the Olympics yeah. and he, he knew how to build a great team very loyal team, and uh, look at the end result. Yeah. It came out way in the black, probably the best Winter Olympics ever held. Members of the IOC said if they ever picked just one venue for the Winter Olympic Games, it would be Salt Lake. Mm-hmm. So you, 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 you felt good and solid and proud of the work you did uh, during all of that? I did, mm-hmm. uh, and I think Salt Lake City really stood out because we – Weren't the typical host city like Atlanta, for instance, that, that passed ordinances to run the homeless off. They, they passed an ordinance that made it illegal to fall asleep 
in certain public places or for people, for instance, to be in parking lots if they didn't have their car there. They paid one-way tickets to put the homeless on buses to get them out of the city. Mm-hmm. Um, we did just the opposite. We built some great overflow shelters for the homeless. We sure. made sure the people were taken care of. And we also made certain that there were very significant opportunities, First Amendment opportunities for people who had messages they wanted to communicate. Protesters. Whether we liked their messages or not. Mm-hmm. I saw it as a sign of healthiness, frankly, when I saw things being communicated that were really distasteful to me, like the truck going around with the picture of the cut-up fetus on the side. Well, yeah, it's repulsive to me, but they had every right to be there. Uh, We made a deal with these people. They wanted to protest the extravagance of the Olympics in a time when there are so many poor people in this country. And so we got them together with our police chief. We said, okay, here's what you can do. Here's how you can best get out your message We'll make room for you here. Do you want to be arrested? Oh, yeah, we'd like to be arrested. And we said, okay. Well, after after your march, just step across the line here, and we'll handcuff you and book you and take you in, and then we'll get you back to wherever you need to go. Mm -hmm. And we did it. It all worked out great. They were able to get arrested. They made their point. They were able to communicate very well. Um, I was approached by some Chinese diplomats, if you can believe it. They, They flew out from Washington to meet with me, to encourage me to not allow the Falun Gong to have any oh, presence during the Olympics. They're a, a, revolution or a, a revolutionary kind of underground group. In- no, I, you know, Falun Gong is mostly a very peaceful is that- organization, yeah, and they've been horribly oppressed by the Chinese government. It's a, a terrible chapter where in are Chinese they? history. Where, where do they exist in just in China? Where do they exist? Oh, I don't know. I think oh. they're all over China. All over China. But they're persecuted. They're in prison. Some have been killed. Um, so, but they're the ones that you see going through the very slow movements. I don't know if it's Tai Chi. Oh, it's Tai Chi. Yeah. Tai Chi. Tai Chi, yeah. But anyway, so they come to me. We're meeting in my office. They tell me they want me to ban Falun Gong. And I said, do you, do you not know where you are? I said, this is the United States of America. You obviously don't know my record when it comes to First Amendment. We welcome everybody. And, in fact, we're going to build a place in Pioneer Park where people can speak to the crowds. And we've got a parade route. In fact, I think the day before... I, I told them the, the day earlier that we had uh, given a permit, a parade permit, to the Falun Gong. We welcomed them to our community. And I said, and you might want to come here and see how well this all works. And you can learn a great lesson for when the Olympics are held in China. Because instead of button heads with everybody that has something different to say than what you agree with, it can be very healthy for people to express themselves, and you don't then face all this hatred and hostility and, and potential violence. So the Wall, the Wall Street, so they went on their way, not very happy with their me- meeting with the mayor. The Wall Street Journal did a story about this after the Olympics. It was hilarious to read because at the end of the story it said, 
the the only problem the mayor said he had with the Falun Gong is that they walk so slowly. <laughs> uh, did you? What do you think? There were there were controversies uh, when you were mayor. Um, uh, there was the issue of. Uh, Selling off the main street or closing the no Didi quit. Okay, everybody get this straight because I keep reading this. I people saying, "Oh, but you sold Main Street." No, I didn't sell Main Street. I was totally opposed to what city sells a block of their Main Street to the predominant religion. I mean, first of all, it was a bad thing for our downtown, and. It's horrific in terms of the, the 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 divide between those who are LDS and those who are not LDS. Okay, describe the whole situation because I need to be reminded of exactly okay. how it works. Didi Corradini right. sold a block of Main Street, which is now the, called the Main Street Plaza, mm-hmm. to the LDS church for some eight or eight and a half million dollars. And that happened to plug the hole in her budget. We got nothing in the long term from that. There was no legacy fund. There was nothing that we were able to enjoy years later. It was a one-time plug Mm -hmm. for her budget. And in framing the deal, the lawyers for the city and the LDS Church, apparently they didn't bother to read the United States Constitution or any of the relevant case law, they agreed that there be a pedestrian easement across that block where pedestrians would always be able to pass through, which would be great, Mm -hmm. except then they agreed, and there shall be no loud laughter, I think they said loud laughter, Mm -hmm. partying, no sunbathing, no this, that, the Displays of affection, things like that. Unbelievable. Mm -hmm. If this is like a sidewalk, mm-hmm. public sidewalk, and you allow the LDS church to call the shots on what behavior is appropriate and what isn't, including First Amendment speech, including symbolic speech. And so that was being attacked by the ACLU and the Unitarian Church when I came in as mayor. Went up the Tenth Circuit. Tenth Circuit decision comes down, lands in my lap. They say, no, this is unconstitutional. And I said, okay, end of story. We leave everything the way it is. You you can't impose those restrictions. We keep the easement. Right. Because there had been a, in the deed of trust, signed by Mayor Cordini and a representative of the LDS Church, it provided that if any of the provisions in the deed of trust, uh, was it deed of trust? Might have been the deed. Anyway, whatever the legal document was, if, if any of the provisions are deemed unconstitutional or invalid for any reason, everything else remains the same. Mm-hmm. I said, okay, everything remains the same, except you can't impose these unconstitutional right. restrictions. Mm-hmm. Bill, although both sides signed this, Mm-hmm. All holy hell broke loose. I, now that's what I'm remembering. Yeah. It just went crazy. Because the LDS Church is saying, oh, this is sacred ground, and it's between the temple and the Hotel Utah, the office building now. And uh, we can't allow 
people to do whatever they want on this easement. It's like, well, didn't you think about that at the time you signed the agreement? This wasn't my deal. Mm-hmm. So that was my position. Yeah. LDS Church does a shiny brochure sent out to every resident in the city making their case, never explaining, oh, by the way, we agreed that everything else would remain the same if these conditions were deemed unconstitutional. Well, the Court of Appeals, in its opinion, said one solution would be for the city to sell the easement, to convey it over. I said, I'm not going to do that. Mm -hmm. The deal's the deal. I was being the lawyer. Yeah. And then, after all hell broke loose, everybody hating each other, depending on which side they came down. Mm Mm-hmm. And mostly it was those who were LDS and those who weren't LDS. Yeah. Week after week after week, people coming in council meetings, yelling and screaming, demonstrating. It was horrible. And then these street preachers show up, and they're waving garments around, and they're screaming at women coming out after being married in the temple that they're whores and harlots. And I'm seeing this huge rupture in our community. you got to make peace. And at that point, yeah, uh, uh, the minister of the, the Unitarian Church, Tom Goldsmith, came to a city council meeting and said, if we can't figure out how to resolve this, how do we expect to find peace in Palestine? Or no, I said Jerusalem. So I took that to heart. December 13th, Friday it's dark in my office. I'm alone there with my parrot Cardozo. And I'm thinking, I'm not leaving here until I figure this out. We've got to stop this. And I came up with an idea. I said, thought, okay, we've got to do something that is meaningful for people who are underserved in this community. Let's solve this. Stop the hatred between people. Bring people together, but it's got to be resolved because it was just getting worse and worse. If I was just going to stick by my lawyerly approach to this Mm -hmm. and just say, you entered a deal, deal, stick with it. Well, now is a new circumstance. This is a whole different situation with the preachers out there and everything Mm -hmm. else was happening. So then I decided, okay, you're not just a lawyer, you're the mayor. You have a responsibility to try to find peace and whatever compromises make sense. So I called Jim Sorensen. said, Jim, we have this issue. Would you, if we could get the LDS Church to put up the property next to the Sorensen Center, would you put up another million dollars for basically something attached to the Sorensen Center to use as a community center for this underserved part of our community, Glendale. And he said, yeah, I'll do it. I tracked John Huntsman down. He was in Texas. He said he, he would match it. Mm-hmm. He said, that's right. He said, you know, we need to, we should call the Alliance for Unity together. This was Friday. We called together an emergency meeting Saturday of the Alliance for Unity. We all got together. Yes, absolutely, we've got to solve this. They said, let's raise at least a total with Sorensen's gift of, of $5 million to go into the center. And so they, they hit it hard. I met with uh, Elder Ballard, who was really great about it. 
he said, yeah, I think we can, we can help do this. And I think we met again Sunday because we planned a press conference on Monday to announce this. Well, I called Tom Goldsmith, and I said, Tom, I've taken to heart your plea that we find a solution. Here's my idea for a solution. What do you think? He said, Rocky, that's fantastic. That's perfect way to solve this. I'll back you 100%. Great. Will you be at the press conference on Monday? Yes, I'll be there. I called Danny Iyer at the ACLU, tracked her down. She was at a gas station. And I said, your lawyer in the prior lawsuit said if the city sold the easement for fair market value, there would not be a constitutional issue. And she said, that's right. If you sell that uh, for whatever market value is, there wouldn't be a constitutional issue. We, we won't weigh in. I said, great. We held the press conference on Monday. Tom Goldsmith shows up. Then he gets up the podium and says something like, so long as we can preserve, fully preserve First Amendment rights. Went up to him and I said, well, what? What is that hedge? Because you know that there's not going to be full First Amendment rights yeah. on the easement if it's conveyed. And he said, oh, I just got hammered my, by my board over the weekend, and they're upset about this. And so you know what happened? I love Danny, and I love Tom. I really do. But They hung out to dry, didn't they? <laughs> that's as polite. I'm didn't glad they? you said it because it's the nicest phrase I could they, use they hung out for what dry. they did because... Yeah. The Unitarian Church voted to sue. The ACLU represented them out of New York. It was probably one of the worst lawyers I've ever dealt with. Uh, He was pathetic. And they ended up getting their butt kicked. Their case was dismissed. They wasted all sorts of time and money. And they had such an opportunity to say, yeah, this, as we told Rocky, this is constitutional. Mm -hmm. This, This is how you resolve things. And we did bring about mostly a, a peaceful resolution to this because those First Amendment rights, I went over and, and demonstrated. I spoke at the demonstration uh, against Proposition 8 when mm-hmm. it was passed in California. Yeah. Huge crowd. They all marched around the sidewalk, around the temple. Their First Amendment rights weren't hampered because we don't have that pedestrian easement across Main Street right. Plaza anymore. Mm-hmm. So this, I'm sorry about the long explanation. It, it made you look bad, though, didn't it? Well, on both sides. Yeah. I had, first of all, yep. the LDS people mad because I was saying a deal is a deal. And then when I saw the rupturing in this community and the need for, for a compromise solution, yeah. then those on the other side were mad thinking yeah. I folded to the LDS church. I didn't fold to anybody. Yeah. I helped bring about the only resolution that, number one, would bring about peace, and number two that would really help out the underserved area of Glendale. I must say, you're the only, uh, and you're the only guy who ever tried to uh, accede to the LDS Church's wishes when they wanted to change their name. <laughs> and you were the only guy I ever heard. What would they? They wanted to stop being called the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints. They wanted to be called. The Church of Jesus Christ. The Church of Jesus Christ, that's right. Yeah, and on, you, on second and all later references was how they put it. Yeah, well, we went to be, and they've since abandoned this idea, but you were the only one, as I recall, you would always say, oh, that's fine if that's what you want, and any time you addressed, uh, they came up in public, you would say, the Church of 
the Church of Jesus Christ. Well, on first reference, I'd say the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Yeah, but, and on the second but, and all future references, I'd say the I Church heard, of Jesus Christ. But I remember Christ. people saying, what's he doing? Why is he doing that? And I would say, well, because that's... But, but people forget, you know, they don't... It's out of respect. They don't, yeah. But they don't make... People don't make the, the leap, you know. They, they forget that the LDS Church actually said that's what we want to be called. So they just yeah. say, why is Rocky saying that? That's weird. <laughs> because the, anyway, look, we're, we're really, we've been going here and we're going to run out of time. I just want to get a couple of things uh, because you have a life way beyond being the mayor of Salt Lake. Uh, what, what do you think, would you have a great, your greatest accomplishment just in a nutshell as the mayor? Was it the Olympics? And no, I don't think it was the that, Olympics. No? I mean, it, that was, it took a tremendous amount of time and effort, but and and I think our community pulled it off really well, but and I'm proud of my role in it. Mm-hmm. But um, no, I, I think. Uh, Did you like being mayor? Oh, I love being mayor most of the time, yeah. except for when I picked up the newspapers in the morning, had to see what some of these people were writing All about. The me, Deseret News really. Well, even the Tribune wasn't great when we had a couple of those uh, city beat reporters, mm-hmm. but. Um, I think uh, I, I think the youth programs we put together were second to none. Uh, I'm really proud of our leadership, not only across the nation, but internationally on fighting against climate disruption. Yeah, you became uh, you used the, the 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 office of mayor of Salt Lake in a way to to you became kind of a national early national figure in the whole climate change. Yeah, and and I was the I was the only major city mayor who was advocating for the impeachment of George Bush. That caused you some headaches. I uh, don't didn't mind but, but if I were the only mind. person standing, I still would have done it, and it, it was the right thing to do. It was a way to bring the attention of the American people, uh, the the lies that led us into that tragic war, and look what that war has cost us now. And still, there, there yeah. wouldn't been, have been the growth of Al Qaeda. There mm-hmm. wouldn't have been ISIS. Yeah. There wouldn't have been millions of people uh, dying as a result, or uh, injured, or run off from their country, or those who are remaining there under threat of ISIS now. And the people responsible go unpunished. Uh, the people responsible for the financial crisis in this country go unpunished and, as a matter of fact, are back doing business uh, as usual. Oh, they, they all came out yeah. smelling like a rose. They, they, they all profited so much from this, from the bailout, mm-hmm. from us being sucked into this notion that we should allow there to be banks that are too large to fail. And now Hillary Clinton is stuffing her pockets with money from these same banks that led her husband to abandon Glass-Steagall, the restriction yeah. on commercial and investment banks being jointly owned, and the, the destruction of the regulations over these the destructive, phony, securitized collaterals. So how do you not become discouraged when you see this uh, happening over and over again? Um, how do you not become discouraged, and what are you doing today to keep your to keep the, the the Rocky Anderson the Crusader going? My view is we just the, the the way not to be discouraged or to be cynical is realize we all are responsible and we all can do a great deal. Find whatever way we can 
to lead toward a difference. And that doesn't mean just going and voting every every election. It means getting out and advocating, being a, a good educated uh, citizen, uh, and standing up against this craziness. You know, if if there are unjustified police shootings. We've had three of them in Salt Lake City over just the last few years. Mm -hmm. Two men and a beloved dog killed absolutely unnecessarily. Show up. Can you imagine if we had all of State Street filled with people calling for changes in policies and practices, if we had people calling for full accountability? We can turn this around if every one of us turns into an activist. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the reasons that I read reactivated my bar license i'm i'm handling right now for instance a lawsuit against george bush dick cheney and the nsa for blanket surveillance during the olympics during the olympics and bill people don't seem to realize this either this or they just simply don't care about what the fundamentals of our government are what the fundamentals of a constitutional republic are and that is the executive branch cannot be given the power to undermine our individual rights just because they think that it's a good thing for the national security. That's for Congress to do. They've passed laws. The executive branch is bound to follow those laws. And they did just the opposite during the Olympics. They came in. They grabbed the contents. They subjected the every one of our emails, the contents yeah, probably my email to surveillance, yeah. mm-hmm. and they likely still have it all out at their facility in Bluffdale. Yeah. That's why it's six or seven times the size of of a uh, an IKEA store mm-hmm. filled with these enormous computers to store our communications. So we're just asking primarily, fess up, let us know what our government was up to, like. We saw happen in the late 70s when the church committee of the Senate, named after Frank Church, Frank Senator church. from Idaho, they investigated, publicly disclosed a lot of the abuses from the intelligence community, and they undertook to legislate certain measures like the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act that said before you ever subject any communications of the American people to surveillance, you have to have a warrant or it's a federal felony. Well, that held true until the Bush administration. They used 9-11 as, as an excuse not to go get warrants, not to show that there was particularized cause in any instance. And in Salt Lake City, it was the worst abuse ever in our nation's history because here they picked a geographic area, basically placed a surveillance cone over it, and sucked up everything. Yeah. What do you... Um so where does where do people go? Where do you advise people to go who want to get educated about these things, who want to become more active citizens of the United States? Well, first of all, I, I know that a lot of people no longer read newspapers. Good, educated friends of mine are oblivious to what's happening. They don't even bother to read a newspaper. And don't tell me you're reading it online because it, it, you, you're not going to see. I mean, you read a newspaper. It's a very different thing. Yeah to be able to you see the new headlines and such. And, and we've all got to stand up for the survival of the Salt Lake Tribune. This filthy deal that was reached between the Deseret News and the hedge fund 
mm-hmm. owners of the Tribune to basically wring out any chance that the Tribune can make it financially mm-hmm. in the long run, that's got to be unwound. Mm-hmm. That, that is such a, absolutely an antitrust violation, in my view. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd also suggest, you know, read good news magazines. I'll tell you, the best place, I think, is The Week because it summarizes so many things that happened during the prior week. It shows both sides, or sometimes it's more than two sides to an issue. And get back to reading books and teach your children to read books. My son is just an unbelievable reader, and that's because he did a lot of it when he was young. Mm -hmm. I used to pay him to read books and to write papers on them, (laughs) and it paid off. He's a great writer now and a voracious reader. And what about you, your political? Uh, you have some action committees and uh, organizations. You're still doing all of that as well. Well, that people not, can not really. I'm I'm so overwhelmed with my caseload right yeah. now. I'm handling the the Geis case. So the, back to the law for the, the yeah. And and I mean I, I I wish I could spread myself further than than I already am, but it's already way too thin. <laughs> this lawsuit against the NSA and and Bush. Mm-hmm. Is taking a tremendous amount of time. I'm handling a number of other cases, including the case for Sean Kennel, whose dog Geist mm-hmm. was killed by a police officer who had no business being in Sean's backyard. Mm-hmm. And when the dog came at him doing what dogs do, barking and running toward him, this police officer shot him dead. That's just wrong. We can't stand for that sort of thing in our communities. Rocky, we're out of time. Um, it's it's been a pleasure to sit and talk with you. you uh, and you, now I think if you listen to this interview with Rocky Anderson, you think, oh, he's you know he was always so irascible and always. This is this is the Rocky Anderson that I know. You sit across, you have a thoughtful conversation, uh, and it's it's great to know you. And thanks for doing it. Thank you, Bill. I really, and I love what you do. And and you know the the. The discussions you all have, I've got to say, uh, when we talk about the media in this country and how they've let us down in so many ways, the, the kind of dialogue that you all have, and, and if you can have fun with it at the same time, so much the better, and I really appreciate what you all do. Well, we try. You know, we've, we've made fun of you over the years sometimes. You know that, don't you? I know. Yeah, I but you don't, you don't care. No, I love you guys. <laughs> you wouldn't be doing your job. <laughs> uh, it's it's uh, the Let's Go Eat show. Thanks a lot to Sage's Cafe for having us here. We had some great food. Uh, thanks to Rocky Anderson, our guest. Thanks to Dylan for producing the show. Mm-hmm. And that's it. I just want to tell you it's nice to be back in uh, the saddle doing the Let's Go Eat show. We took a little bit of a hiatus, but we're back. And uh, remember, if you're pouring the drinks, always make mine a double. <laughs> thanks, man.